Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today nearly live from Ottawa, Ontario. Very excited about today's episode talking about what has been referred to as the longest street in the world. That's right, Young Street in Toronto, which is the subject of Daniel Ross's new book entitled The Heart of Toronto, Corporate Power, Civic Activism, and the Remaking of Downtown Young Street. Now, Daniel is a professor of history at UCAM. He is also one of the editors of this fine website, uh, activehistory.ca. I've known him for a while. Uh, always fun to have the opportunity to talk with Daniel. And the book, while it is about Young Street and the transformation of Young Street in Toronto in the post-Second World War era, it does touch on a lot of themes that have shaped urban life in cities across the country. The tension between corporate interests and community interests, uh, citizen activism, uh, state power, uh, e even things like transportation getting to and from these locations or streets as pedestrian-friendly versus car-friendly versus public transit. There's a lot of issues that are at play in young streets that exist elsewhere. While at the same time, of course, it is very specific to Toronto and to Young Street, the transition of the street that mirrors the transition of Toronto becoming the commercial corporate center of the country in those post-Second World War years, while at the same time, the rise of counterculture, the section of the street, which was referred to as Sin Strip, we talk about that, uh, the tension that comes along with that, and of course, then the development major projects, something like the Eaton Center, that if you've ever been to Toronto and to Young Street, you very likely have been to the Eaton Center. So a, a lot of layers to this story. Uh, and so I was thrilled to have the opportunity to talk with Daniel, uh, go through the book a little bit. It's a really wonderful work. And uh, I think you can see from the discussion that we have on the show, I think you'll see from the discussion just how... Uh, excited he is about these stories and how exploring some of the broader themes through the lens of the street and narratively really makes a lot of sense. So I think if you pick up the book, you will certainly enjoy it, as I hope that you will also enjoy our chat. So let's get right into my discussion with Daniel Ross. All right. And Daniel Ross joins me now from his office in Montreal. Daniel, how are you today? Hey, Sean, I'm doing well. Nice uh, to see you. Hey, you too. Uh, it's been a while. I think the last time we saw each other would have been, I think, Vancouver 2019 at CHA. Yep. That was the last time I saw a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A lot of the historical community that spread across the country, that would have been the last time uh, face to face. So it's, it's really nice to see you catch up a little bit. And congratulations on the release of your book, as I said in the intro, The Heart of Toronto. Now, Daniel, you are from Toronto, of course, not teaching there now. You've moved on. But how much of this book for you, before we get into some of the specifics of it, how much of this is based off of just your connection to the city and your lived experience being someone who is a Torontonian? Mm -hmm. 
Thanks, Sean. Yeah, I'm originally from Toronto, although now I teach in Montreal at UCAM. Um, thankfully for our readers, uh, very little of the book is based on my personal experiences. Like a lot of people from Toronto, I have my own connections to the street. So as a kid, it was sort of this this hub for excitement. I'd go there to to poster shops. I'd go, I'd go and window shop with my friends. Later, I worked there when I was an undergrad. I sold shoes, actually, in the Eaton Centre shopping mall. Um, I went out at night. So I, so I know Young Street intimately, and perhaps that gave me the spark that made me interested in, in understanding it as a, as a place, as, as part of a wider city. But I've kept my personal experiences to the acknowledgments of the book, and they aren't in the, in the main narrative. So as I mentioned in the intro, it centers around Young Street. And before we get into some of that, could you just clarify some? Because I assume you would know this. Is Young Street the longest street in the country? There's this persistent rumor that I've heard that that is, in fact, the case. Is that accurate? Yeah, uh, uh, great question. I, I don't want to come down too hard on one side or the other because people <laughs> in Toronto are quite serious about this kind of thing. Yeah. Depends on what you consider a street. I think the the longest street in the world thing is only valid if you consider the street, which turns into a highway being one continuous thoroughfare. But what's interesting from the perspective of my book is that that story about Young being the longest street in the world, this this effort to get it in the Guinness Book of World Records, to, to promote it, that's a product of the period that I study in my book when people were searching left and right for strategies for promoting the street and for making people recognize it as special because they were worried about it. So what is it about Young Street that holds that romance for people? Why Young Street? I mean, I, I've spent some time in downtown Toronto. I worked a summer at Bay and Bloor and then worked at the Blue Jay Games. And so, you know, I have a sense of downtown. I would always walk down Bay Street until I could get to the underground. Like Bloor Street scared me. Young Street, frankly, <laughs> kind of scared me. Uh, I would always do Bay Street, the, the calmer streets. But there is a romance to Young Street. It's undeniable. A lot of tourists go there. There's, there's a lot going on, especially the closer you get to the lake. It's very busy. So, so what is it about the street that attracts people to it? And where does that romance originate? Well, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's somewhat unique in Toronto in terms of the nostalgia that's attached to it, the the images, the the memories. If you go on the Vintage Toronto Facebook group, which is one of these local history groups with over 100,000 members, people are constantly talking about Young Street, constantly posting photos and 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 memories. I think Young Street as a downtown commercial street sort of shares with a lot of other streets like Montreal's St. Catherine Street. A couple common characteristics. It was a commercial center for the city for a long time, for almost a century. It still is to an extent. It was very close to the place where municipal business was transacted, close to the courts and, and city hall. It was a place for parades, for celebrations. It was sort of the magnetic center of the city that pulled people in from the suburbs and beyond. And And that sort of legacy still exists today, even though we're dealing with a city that's organized differently and that has attractions well beyond downtown. So that's sort of the, the the specific downtown identity of Young Street. And of course, you could also point to its cultural life because there have been tons of films made about it. Uh, the music scene was really big on Young Street. And of course, and this is an episode I deal with in my book, Young Street had this reputation in the 1970s as Sin Strip, as sort of the, the sleazy big city strip that to some made Toronto an interesting and exciting North American city and for others uh, was a sign of its decline. 
Excellent. And so the book does look at the this era, as you say, in the, the 70s and the, the post-war years. And what struck me is, as I was going through it is this is also a time where the the business center of the country is continually shifting from Montreal to Toronto. I think a, a lot of students, certainly, and maybe even me growing up, had the sense of, well, Toronto's the biggest city in the country. It was always that way. Uh, but of course, <laughs> we know it, it wasn't. And how does Young Street fit into the transition or how much does the the rise of Young Street and the identity go along with that broader transition away from Montreal towards Toronto as the business, the undenied business center of the country? Yeah, that's a great point. And I think you're right in identifying maybe the 1950s and 60s as the period where the sort of economic center of gravity in Canada starts moving from uh, Montreal to, to to Toronto definitively. It impacts the story in a couple ways. So prior to, let's say, the 20s or 30s, Toronto is really a regional capital. It's the most important city in Ontario and, and, and west of Montreal. It's the most important city. It matters industrially. It matters because banks in Toronto are sort of colonizing the west and, and, and the financial center is growing through that. But it's really in this period of the 50s and 60s when it starts becoming the, the command and control center of the Canadian economy. And it impacts my story because at the same time as people are very concerned for Young Street as a retail and shopping area, as an entertainment area, as a downtown street, you have this financial district being built at the foot of the street around Young and, and King Street, which is immensely successful, which is pulling office workers in, um, which is seeing the, the biggest skyscraper development in the country. So your question really highlights the unequal growth and the unequal sharing of the benefits of urban prosperity across downtown. So while a commercial street is struggling, uh, just a few blocks away, we have this financial capital, which is absolutely booming and continues to do so to this day. What was the community like before that boom? So who are these people that are struggling? Toronto Mm -hmm. for a long time. And again, from, from my studying of people like Larry Gaines, for instance, you had these communities that existed in different parts. It was very geographically isolated in a sense that, that people from certain parts of the world would live in certain places uh, through the 20th century. So who is there? What is the makeup of the community prior to this transition? And what are some of the forces that ensure that they are not participating in that prosperity in the same way as the developers? Young Street, like other downtown commercial streets in this era, is in a transitional period. You can talk about a sort of retail ecology in which there's a couple hundred small businesses, mostly independent businesses, although that's changing. There's there's chains appearing and and there have always been the department stores. Uh, Can't forget that Toronto has some of the department store giants. It's the founding city for Eaton's, which later extends its empire across the country to large Eaton stores, including their flagship at Young and Queen, which is just opposite the Simpson Company store. So big department stores, a ton of small uh, retail stores and other services, a growing entertainment sector from the 40s and 50s. That's really taking off. It's always been a part of Young Street as a downtown street, uh, cinemas, theaters. But in the 50s, you also have things like cocktail bars. You have um, a little later the jazz, rock and roll and folk scenes. So entertainment is becoming a big part of the the scene and, and more and more outlets that are catering to a younger crowd. So to the boomers as teenagers by the time you get to the 60s. So selling things like records, T-shirts, posters, stuff like that. Was it a hub at that point of people like it, it was a destination. I mean, my my father, who was a, who is a boomer, 
uh, would talk about he had family in Toronto and they would dress up and go into the city and like go to dinner. They would talk about going to Honest Ed's, uh, right, and going to for, to that. That it was a place where you went to. You you went out of your way to make a trip down into the city. Is that the case, Young Street? That it's it's drawing people in from not just the core of the city, but potentially the region. Definitely, it has a it has not just a, a metropolitan, but really a regional pull. Um, this is really evident before the period covered in my book when it's um, not the only game in town, but it is the center for services, for retailing, when you want to buy a wedding dress, when you want to order furniture or a piano, when you want to go to the theater, go out at night. Young Street is sort of the single focus of the metropolitan area. What the main challenge of the 50s and 60s and 70s is that there are new poles of, of uh, commercial activity, of entertainment appearing in the suburbs. More and more people are living at a significant distance from downtown. The city's becoming more polycentric. So Young Street isn't the only game in town, even if it's still the biggest marketplace, even if it's still the most exciting place in the city, uh, there's a lot of competition. And that competition is perceived in the context of post-war Canada as being more modern, as catering more to the lifestyle of Torontonians, which is increasingly built around the car. And so that brings up the, the issue of Young Street, pedestrian access, car access, public transit access. So who's leading these discussions and who's really advocating on the part of those community members who are using the street, who want the street to thrive? So you have maybe not necessarily competing interests, but people who could have disparate interests of people who live locally who might want more pedestrian access versus commercial centers, people who sell stuff who might want car access compared mm -hmm. to potentially the big businesses who are just bringing in commuters who want public transit access. Like yeah. how disparate are these interests and what is that process like where they're advocating to the city for that, for those interests in terms of the transportation to and on the street? Yeah. Yeah. Great question. And, and it touches on uh, the Chapter three of my book, which which deals with this uh, Young Street Pedestrian Mall, which was a plan to close the street every summer in the early 1970s and, and make it a pedestrian way. So closed to cars, but open to pedestrians and open uh, to recreation, open to gathering, to, to shopping. Um, a lot of people are very interested in mobility in the city in the post-war period. So they're trying to adapt to the automobile. They see that as the key technology that's going to link center to, to the expanding suburbs. Toronto is somewhat uh, unique among North American cities, a bit less in Canada, but in the North American contest, somewhat, somewhat unique in the sense that it makes major investments in public transit at the same time. So while you're building expressways, they're also building a subway line, which runs down Young Street. Um, and that maintains metropolitan, metropolitan connectivity through public transit, as well as through the automobile. The pedestrian mall is an idea uh, generated by planners, generated by small businesses on Young Street who think that the key to protecting the street is to open it up as a public space, is to make it as pleasant a place for pedestrians to use as the new shopping malls that are appearing in the suburbs, which provide this sort of protected environment where cars are kept at a distance, where there are plants, places to sit, cafes, etc. So it's sort of beating suburbia at its own game. And it's an immensely attractive idea that that 
not only small businesses get behind, but also environmentalists. Can't forget the late 60s, early 70s. We're talking about a time when people are increasingly aware of the, the cost of pollution in terms of health, uh, of, of the car as, as a menace in the urban context. Not, of course, for everyone. But uh, there's a big debate over the Spadina Expressway, which is a major north-south expressway project in Toronto. And the, throughout the 1960s, it sort of comes to a head in 70, 71. And, and that sort of debate combined with the pedestrian mall means that um, people are rethinking the place of the car in the city in Toronto as they are in other North American cities. So the pedestrian mall happens at this time, sort of through a confluence of factors backed by a whole bunch of actors. And it creates this exciting public space, which, however, is very disruptive of the classic patterns of mobility that we're operating in the city. So as we know, when you close one major street to cars, you create inevitably traffic jams, you inevitably enrage people. And so um, <laughs> including transportation planners, including sure. yeah. some drivers. Yeah. And, I mean, we live and, this, we live this the past two years in Ottawa where yeah. th on the canal here on both sides, there's a road that goes along. One's the Queen Elizabeth, the other Colonel by, and they closed it to traffic the Queen Elizabeth in 2020. So people can get out uh, and be active. And you could see the long lines of cars on Colonel by. And then last summer it was vice versa. And yeah, you just see it and people would get angry about not having the mobility that they knew. But part of the theory is it not, and I assume this comes up in the discussions where by taking away access to the car, isn't the idea by planners and people who advocate for it, that it pushes people towards public transit and towards more active transit? And, and what is that? Yeah, definitely. And it, conflict? Yeah, um, that's one conflict. It's really about what a street is like Young Street. Right. So is Young Street a connector? Is Young Street the way you get from point A to point B? Is Young about mobility through and beyond downtown or is young street a destination a place and and the the people behind the pedestrian mall are trying to cultivate it and in a way protect it as a place so they want people to go there to linger in ways that they weren't on 12 foot sidewalks with four lanes of traffic beside them and so that's the the conflict at the heart of this it's it's what the street should be and of course, it takes a lot of effort in a city that's built around the car where there's an expectation that Young will remain a thoroughfare to maintain it as a place, as sort of a, a new and, and innovative public space that's open to all. Is it possible for something to be both, to be a, a place where you go, a place to linger, a place to hang out, and a thoroughfare? Those two things in my head seem directly in contrast to each other. And I, I don't know how they can coexist effectively. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, which gets, I mean, urban space is at a premium and we have to make tough choices as to how we use it. I think there are models that work a lot better than the classic uh, sidewalk, four lanes of traffic, or the entirely uh, pedestrianized shopping mall. I think a lot of streets in European cities, in some Canadian cities, they've tried this as well, have been narrowed to one or two lanes, limited parking, um, giving more space to people while still recognizing that vehicles are essential to the functioning of the downtown economy and, and to public life. One of the challenges of these early pedestrian malls when they completely closed streets to traffic was um, it changed the ecology of the street. And some people felt unsafe, for example, on a street where police cars could only with difficulty reach 
most stretches of the block or on a street where uh, they might be the only pedestrian. Um, so the, there's definitely things that can be done and planners have been thinking about this for 40 years, well beyond the period I cover in the book to, to mix those functions while respecting the fact that pedestrians might need a larger place than they currently occupy. Right. And, and if any of these places used to be on, as you noted with police, but also fire or ambulance routes, that, that, that yeah. creates potentially tension or nervousness amongst the, the population. Now, mm -hmm. you, you mentioned that all this is taking place, that the idea of a come you hang out, it corresponds to what you mentioned earlier of the transition towards Sin Strip, where this perception of Young Street as Sin Strip. Now, I, I want to preface this as I don't mean this in a judgmental way towards anybody, but would not those things uh, that lead the street to be dubbed Sin Strip, that would potentially make people wary of going if they have young children, for instance. So this idea of creating a space where people can come, linger, hang out, how does that work when there is also this perception of sin strip and does the transition towards making it a space where people can be more sedentary or, or a, like a hangout space as opposed to just a pure like walk through go shopping leave sort of space does that contribute to the rise of some of those activities yeah it's a, it's an interesting question so sin strip it's not it's not my label but this is a label that's used at the time by media commentators it sort of denotes a stretch of young street not very long a couple blocks centered on young and dundas where there's a large number from the early 1970s of uh nude massage parlors of sex cinemas peep shows uh sex shops uh etc it's essentially Toronto's post-war sex district. So it's just a local manifestation of a larger phenomenon. Laws around sexual entertainment and sex work are really changing in the 60s and 70s in North America. And in a lot of downtowns, empty or underused rental spaces are taken over by these sexual entertainment entrepreneurs who build businesses based on a brash advertising of sexual services and built on the labor of women who work in various capacities in in these sex shops. So there's direct sex work happening, um, being negotiated in body rub parlors, but there's also the disembodied sex work uh, uh, of pornography. So, so massively commercialized and commoditized uh, female bodies. And this is all happening on Young Street. It's sort of revealed by the mass tourism and the crowds that are brought in by the pedestrian mall in the early 1970s. And it really becomes uh, viewed as an urban problem from around 1973, 1974, when you see a series of actors, including evangelical uh, churches, um, newspapers, the Toronto Sun sort of got its start uh, commenting on Sin Strip and complaining about Sin Strip as a force uh, promoting decline in downtown Toronto. You see these actors converging around Sin Strip as an urban problem, which eventually leads by 1977 to a crackdown. And to get back to your question, which is about people gathering there, uh, whether they felt at ease with their children, uh, families, there's definitely images of the street that are clashing here. So the classic image of a downtown shopping street as a family space, so a, a place that might attract the suburban family, which is viewed as the, the essential unit. Uh, of the consumer society. So that's what the, the main department store retailers want to attract. And then the idea that by night, this becomes a fundamentally gendered space. So this is a space for male desire for heterosexual men, whether they're 
tourists or uh, the convention crowd or uh, men from Toronto that they can go to find some measure of satisfaction for their desire. And these and these different images of the street, these different uses of the street sort of coexist in the sense that Young Street is never completely one or the other. By night, it has quite a different identity from daytime. And this provokes, uh, and I and I go into this in the book, a massive citizen campaign trying to restore sort of a, a, a nostalgized vision of the street before sexual entertainment, uh, responding to, to concerns about decline, and and pushing back, calling for the city to use its powers to uh, open the street up again to to make it Young Street for all the people, rather than, in their view, the small subset of the population that's using the uh, sexual entertainment venues. So there's that pressure, that that outcry, that, as you say, this confluence of people who are coming together. How much of the outrage, though, is based in any reality, or is it all just virtue signaling, panic over this stuff that, that corresponds with other things going along or going around uh, societally where you do see it was really manifest in the eighties, but the rise, the re-rise of conservatism, a pushback to the counterculture. Like how much of this is specifically what's happening on the street versus larger trends that we are just seeing not only in Toronto, but elsewhere across the country yeah. and, and across North America, really? Yeah, it's, it's a great point. I really try in the book to treat these actors, so for example, conservative populists, uh, evangelical activists, I try and treat them with respect and try and understand their view of the problem they're describing, try and understand why they mobilized, why they wrote letters to the mayor, why they signed petitions, what brings people to go down to Young Street to protest uh, pornography, sex work, sexual entertainment. You can't separate activism around Sin Strip from the larger historical processes going on at the time. So we're in the middle of a conservative backlash to the 60s, to things like the partial decriminalization of homosexuality, to the increased availability of abortion, to drug use, even to the changes in the way young people are dressing, behaving, to this lack of deference of, uh, or perceived lack of deference of the baby boom generation towards older people. You also have, in addition to these larger social changes, you have real concern about the direction that downtown is going in. And many people have memories, very nostalgized, of downtown as sort of a safe family space, a place to go shopping, perhaps a place they went with their families to go to the movies. And they feel that that's threatened by the images that they see, whether through direct personal experience or in the newspapers of uh, signs saying girl, 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 girls, 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 of men handing out flyers for massage parlors and occasionally of sex workers operating on the street at night. So while I try and give uh, a fair treatment to these actors and not say that their concerns were false or, or that they had the whole thing wrong. I mean, to them, these are things that matter. It, uh, downtown is a significant political issue for a lot of people in Toronto. It is important to note that for them, it's never just about the appearance of a bunch of body rub parlors. They're connecting it, as is often the case with moral regulation campaigns, to a larger narrative of decline. And that narrative is, of course, subjective, because while they were claiming that Young Street was in decline, uh, that, that downtown was no longer a safe space, other people were using the street, there was still a rich street life in the area, and uh, that continued to happen throughout the period uh, of the greatest anxiety about its future. So 
how much influence did the people who were running these shops, the massage parlors, the the cinemas, the the, the what sway did they have in the face of this backlash or the campaigns against them? Because it, it does speak to the larger question of who has agency in the transformation of the street. You have the people who are the consumers, the users of the street in all of its uh, its forms, uh, but then you also have local citizens who might be concerned. You have businesses who at the other end of the street who might feel like, oh, this is bringing in shady people. And, and then you have families, that, that constituency. So who really has the ear of the city and where does that influence come from? Mm-hmm. Well, that, that's a that's a great question. And and so I can answer it first in the specific for these these sex entrepreneurs. So the people who open these uh, body rub parlors and sex shops on Young Street in the 1970s. For a long time, their operations are protected in the sense that most of what they're doing is in a gray area of the law. It's very difficult to prosecute them. They reach sort of a um, they reach sort of a tacit agreement with police in most cases, so that by 1970, 71, there are very few raids by Toronto's morality squad. They're more or less cohabitating with police as long as there aren't significant problems. Where things change for them is in 1977, when there's a very publicized murder of a shoeshine boy, Emmanuel Jack, whose body is found on the roof of a massage parlor on Yonge Street. And this dramatically shifts the conversation. So suddenly, uh, the resistance that uh, sex entrepreneurs were able to offer to uh, attempts to to repress the industry uh, no longer counts. And they're sort of swept away by this uh, crackdown by the police, this massive deployment of municipal resources. Um, and they basically don't return to the street with, with a few exceptions. They disperse throughout the city. So, so I can say that they had quite a bit of power or agency in shaping the street's identity as Sin Strip, as a risque entertainment area, until the moment when a series of factors came together, including this much publicized shoeshine boy murder that completely ended their influence at City Hall. But I can also speak to the more general case, and I won't uh, get into it completely with this question, but small business owners are just one actor who's trying to shape the street. Uh, I identify three broad groups in the book. So you've got the state, which is uh, the municipal government at, at two levels in Toronto. So there's the city of Toronto and then metropolitan Toronto um, that's that's increasingly trying to shape the urban landscape, that's trying to shape what kind of activities are happening on streets like Young, and is also setting itself up as a referee or an arbiter between the different interests that are colliding on the street. Then you have capital, and I think this is the most dynamic or powerful actor in my story, um, big businesses, uh, development corporations, banks, the people who are buying and selling property on the street and eventually um, putting forward plans to rebuild and physically refashion the street. And finally, you have citizens. So people who intervene um, based on their their civic voice as as voters, as members of the, the, the civic collective, um, they're also quite vocal. And while they may not have the power of property, or the direct interest in the street that businesses had, um, they proved to be extremely influential at key moments, for example, at election time, when there's a change of government, or when there are public consultations. Um, so people power also has something to say in this story. 
And at what point do those three things like like there has to be conflict there? And I, I mean, the city of Toronto, I, I, I'm sure it exists. And I know you probably are, are more adept at this than I am. But the history of city of Toronto municipal politics uh, feel, seems like a minefield that I wouldn't want to touch on. If for no other reason, then there's so many levels of it that seem to overlap with each other. And then you have the mega city whenever that comes. Like, it just seems like a whole mess. Uh, but then to try to to put that into the context of citizen advocacy, business advocacy, is there any individuals that are the ones who are kind of pulling the strings? And, you know, it's it's almost like a boat where, OK, you can't just turn it 90 degrees. But is anyone kind of really ha- like pushing it in one direction or the other that has more influence over anyone else? Oh, well. Great question. So one of the things I try and do in the book is is widen the lens a bit on municipal politics so that I'm not just talking about interactions at City Hall, the, the behavior of municipal officials and politicians and, and official lobbying, but also what's happening day to day on the street. Uh, what are the projects of the people who use the street, of the people who own property on the street? Um, so this sort of wider sphere, the media, the media is very involved in determining the future of the street. This sort of wider sphere of downtown politics has a number of actors. And as you mentioned, there's conflict. There's conflict around each of the of the uh, episodes that I cover in the book. So around the question of rebuilding, like to what extent can we tear down and rebuild this street and what should our objectives be around uh, sexual entertainment? What's the place of sexual entertainment? What's the place of public morality on this street around pedestrianization? How do we balance people and cars? How do we protect the street as a place or as a corridor for mobility? Around each of those sort of issues, there there's a flashpoint and, and you see these actors colliding and the municipal government ends up being in the role of arbitrating between them. If there's one actor who's pulling the strings in this story, I think that it has to be capital. I think that it has to be the uh, major department stores who who um, are the most powerful business actors on the street, and in the, particularly in the case of Eaton's, which has a massive port, uh, property portfolio on Young Street, and eventually teams up with um, Fairview, later Cadillac Fairview, one of Canada's largest corporate developers, to build the Eaton Center. You can see the scale of their power and based on property, based on capital investment and and uh, and redevelopment, you can see that is on another level from the other actors involved in the story. But I really try and not limit the story to these most powerful actors, but understand how they interacted with other actors who, based on uh, political strategies, based on uh, specific moments when they could get a foothold, when they could um, influence the process, also helped shape the future of the street. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point because yeah, how people use the street, how people interact with the space. It, it's one thing for somebody at City Hall to say, well, let's do this. But if the community doesn't use it that way, then it doesn't matter what City Hall says. And ultimately, mm-hmm. that usage is going to shape how people relate to the street, what its cultural meaning is locally. And it brings me to the Eaton Center, which you referenced Eaton a, a couple times. It's remarkable to me that uh, there are really no department stores left, uh, but Eaton Center, that name still stands. And uh, it, it also strikes me too that malls in 2022, uh, successful malls, it seems to me, are urban now, right? They seem to have shifted from yeah. suburban to urban malls in terms of places 
of success. So what what was the idea of the Eaton Center? What was that project like? Because, you know, go back to those glory days of of Eaton's, of the Bay in the U.S., places like Macy's, these really elaborate big stores. Uh, you have them dotting cities, uh, downtown cores across the country. I believe there's a big project or discussion right now what to do of, I think it's the Bay in Winnipeg downtown. The, yep. There's huge floor yep. space there and what to do with it. So what is that transition from Eaton's, the store, into the mall and to what we know it as today? And, and how much of that process was driven by corporate interests versus, again, those people on the ground? Oh, that's a that's a great question. I really like the parallel with today. The department stores have virtually disappeared. I mean, some of them are still operating, particularly the the higher end ones. There's a mm -hmm. successful Nordstrom in in downtown Toronto in the Eaton Center, but all we have left of Eaton's virtually is is the name, <laughs> and thankfully the Eaton's archives, which I used for the book. So the Eaton Center is this big flagship redevelopment project, which first emerges in the 1950s in Toronto. So at a moment when um, municipal politicians and planners are doing everything they can to encourage people to invest in rebuilding downtown Toronto. Relatively few are. The economic dynamism is really in the suburbs. And there's a lot of worry that downtown is sort of becoming obsolete, that it's going to be superseded, that eventually construction of retail centers and, and other um, commercial uh, development in the suburbs is just going to make downtown uh, lose value and hollow out the city. And and they're and when they uh, make that assessment, that diagnosis, which is overly pessimistic, they're looking at what's happening at the same time in in uh, cities across the border. So places like Buffalo, Detroit, New Haven. So there's this immense push to rebuild, to build higher, to build more modern, more aesthetically, but uh, most of all, more profitably in downtown Toronto. And the city needs a bigger tax base to pay for all the infrastructure that it's building to support the new suburbs. And Eaton's gets pulled into this. They're, they're a longtime uh, corporate citizen in Toronto. They have a particular reputation uh, for supporting schemes to, to better the city. And they have a huge property portfolio in downtown Toronto. And the, the city essentially comes to Eaton's and says, we know you're going to build a new store. Why don't you expand it? Why don't you build what is essentially Toronto's version of the Rockefeller Center? Why don't you build us a new civic center that will complement this new city hall that we're building and that will really uh, spark development across the downtown core? And Eaton's unsurprisingly says, well, we have no experience of that. Maybe we'll think about it, <laughs> but not quite yet. So this, this Rockefeller Center idea, Toronto Civic Center, actually... Uh, gets planned and actually comes fairly close to being implemented in the sense that Eaton's eventually comes to the side of the planners, decides it's a good idea, decides it'll stake its fortunes as a company on this project and starts assembling the property to build just an immense development. So uh, on a scale that no city in North America had yet experimented with. It fails. They can't get together the expertise Ascent of the city to tear down all the historic buildings in the area, notably Old City Hall. But most of all, they can't get financial backing. They're meeting with people uh, in New York City and abroad, and people are saying it's just far too ambitious. Your project is too big. It's not the right time. We don't think that you can pay for it. Eaton Center gets shelved in 1967, but then it comes back a few years later in a different version um, with the backing, crucially, of uh, Cadillac Fairview. And the idea is to essentially build 
a suburban mall, but in the center of the city. So to rebuild the shopping core along the lines of the very successful regional malls that have been cropping up since the early 1960s in Toronto, places like Yorkdale, where you have two major department stores and then sort of a series of corridors with smaller uh, shops. Uh, you have a food court. Um, this is a model that works. This is a model that's a money machine. And so Cadillac Fairview makes the bet that working with Eaton's using this land assembly that had been done a few years earlier, they can build this and make it work in downtown Toronto. And that's sort of the short story of the Eaton Center. It's going to entail just massive changes in the sense that they're tearing down several blocks of the streetscape and behind it, including the old Eaton's factories. They bring street life inside a privately controlled structure where uh, they create what I call in the book a private street. So they maul Main Street. Um, they, they provide people with an air-conditioned, uh, very pleasant environment in which to shop, but it's a corporate-controlled environment. So it's an environment which is in every way optimized to protect consumption, to attract shoppers, to keep them in the street, and to keep them spending. So it's a massive change. And the Eaton Center, when it was first planned, is one of only a few examples of this kind of mall built in the center of a North American city. Within a decade or so after its construction, virtually every large city is trying, with various measures of success, to build an urban shopping mall. And yeah, you certainly see them, as I said, like across the country, across North America, and they are successful, whereas suburban malls are dying. And as just a sort of a side note, I hate suburban malls that are now open, <laughs> that are like open air ones. Like I didn't like closed air suburban malls either, but like, I hate this. You got to drive from one end to the other, like train yards here in Ottawa. If you want to go to like golf town and Walmart, like you can't really do it on foot. I just awful. Uh, so the closed or the, yeah, the closed air ones. Okay. Like it's, it's nice, but how much of this, cause it seems to be corresponding to some of the other tensions that's, that's going on around the street. So how much of the appeal of this or, or part of the business plan is the fear of the other things going on on the street and draw people inside because then you can say to them, oh, this is a safe environment. We are quite literally through our doors keeping those other things that you've read about in the paper that you've heard so much about. We can keep them out. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great point. And I think the people who conceived of the Eaton Center are very conscious of this, whether they frame it in terms of undesirable populations. So through private property rights, they can exclude people from their mall, which is something that can't really be done on the street, or whether they frame it in terms of civility. So Jane Jacobs, the urbanist, is one of the people in Toronto talking about the loss of civility on downtown streets at this time. And she actually praises the Eaton Center for offering a version of the downtown street that is more civil. Now, do with that what you will. The trade-off is this. So you have a street with a private street, privately controlled within the Eaton Center, with uh, the most up-to-date stores, the biggest chains, with uh, some of the uh, better fast food restaurants and other outlets. You also have security cameras. You also have uh, exclusion of uh, various people, whether it's youth, whether it's um, uh, street-involved people from ever using the street you have a complete limitation on political expression with a few although there are some battles over that with union organizing at eaton's you have a, a street which is protected but at the same time constrained by the fact that it is a corporate creation 
So how much of this is also, though, trend setting? Because you, you said that within a decade, every urban center has one. You know, I, I was in one yesterday uh, here in <laughs> Ottawa. So, you know, they, they, they exist and they're popular. So how much is not only just, just Toronto and, and the Eaton Center, but Young Street in general, how much does it influence other communities, other streets across the country? Because I can think of every city in the country that I've been fortunate enough to live in has like this long street that ranges from you know residential, commercial, there's contentious parts of it. There's places where people might not want to go there. Like it, it seems like this sort of environment exist in most, if not all, urban centers. So how does Toronto distinguish itself? And is the Eaton Center one of those areas where it sets a trend for other communities? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. And in the book, I try and compare Toronto to other to other cities, most of all because the people I'm talking about, the actors who are interested in downtown, are constantly looking to other cities. So they're very interested in Ottawa, for example, in 1960, after Spark Street in downtown Ottawa is pedestrianized. They're looking to Kalamazoo, which a year earlier had done the same thing. They're interested in New Haven, um, in New York City, in other places where major urban renewal rebuilding projects are happening in the 1950s and 1960s. They're fascinated by Montreal, where you have sort of a stronger mayoral system and you have a series of mega projects like the subway, Place Ville-Marie, um, Expo, which really put the city on a map, on the map as a, as a modern North American city. Um, perhaps uh, Toronto lags behind in certain areas. There's certainly a feeling in the 1950s that the Toronto is an aspirational city that is trying to catch up to places that have planned their post-war future a bit better, that have more uh, stronger public controls on on planning that have more investment in downtown skyscrapers. But by the time you get to the 70s and the construction of the Eaton Center, I think you can say Toronto is a leader in the sense that um, this local configuration of, of capital, of development corporations, of planning expertise, creating an immensely successful capitalist marketplace in the middle of the city. This is this is a, a resounding success. People across North America are soon trying to imitate the urban shopping mall that is the Eaton Center. And I don't really frame the discussion so much this way in the book, but if you're interested in what the neoliberal urban landscape looks like in North America, this is an early example and a very successful one. And in that sense, you can say Toronto is, if not a trendsetter, at the avant-garde um, in terms of the transformation of the downtown landscape. And you, you see it if you're in Union Station, which I was at some point last year, you could they have a, I can't remember where in the station it is, but you could, they have photos like overhead photos from the 67 and you just see it like you can, if like from you can just see the transformation. It's remarkable not only what has happened, but how fast it happened too. It, yeah. it really didn't take all that long to transform not just Young Street, but it seems that that transformation has expanded uh, throughout the rest of downtown. Yeah, definitely. And and while I focus on the Eaton Center as a project, there's something larger happening, as you describe, uh, a reorganization of the way real estate development works in Canada, a financialization of real estate so that pension funds and, and other institutional investors, as well as individual investors, are pouring money into it. And the result is this physical transformation of downtown Toronto 
Um, you see it in other cities on a smaller scale across Canada as real estate becomes not just uh, the construction of buildings for a specific use, but also a financial services industry. Mm -hmm. So capital is switching from other segments of the economy into the urban landscape. And the very obvious result is this skyscraper city, which continues to be expanded in Toronto and other successful North American cities. Yeah. Just look at the Blue Jays made an announcement this week or like a pseudo announcement that they're going to do some renovations to the Rogers Center built at the Skydome. It's only 30 years old, but yeah. the fact that they had that much area there that wasn't really being used, uh, they build this giant stadium there. And even then when it opened, still not that much around it. And then they found space for the arena. And now if you look at an overhead, it is there's no space left. It's all just condo buildings and some commercial space. It's remarkable how quick that evolution has happened. And, uh, you know, I, I used to work at the games, the Blue Jays. And like I, when I go down there, the last time I went to a game in 2018 or 19, barely recognized the place. It's remarkable. Yeah. Yep. So yep. I, I'm, I'm curious, uh, Daniel, and this is something that I was wondering when this, when I first saw the, the outline of the book, why focus on a street? Like what, what does this do for creating the narrative of, of just telling a story? And, you know, what is it about Young Street and in particular, just even the idea of telling the story through the street? And what does that present you uh, just narrative storytelling wise to address some of the broader trends that are going on on the street that are exemplified in the book? Yeah, it's something I thought about a lot as I was doing the research for this project. I, I initially began with an interest in in downtown public space, in sort of political debates over the future of downtown. But I saw quite quickly that a lot of the big debates that I was interested in were, were all concerned with the same place. So with maybe a one kilometer stretch, a 10 block stretch of one street. And I thought, wow, this, this really helps me connect uh, a discussion of sex, morality, and entertainment to a discussion of public space and cars to the real estate development uh, discussion in a way that's really tangible. So the the street does two things in the book. So first of all, it gives me this narrative through line. So we return again and again to the physical space of the street. There's a series of actors that appear and reappear in each chapter, whether it's business people or local politicians or citizen activists. There's this sense of place that sort of um, gives the empirical study that the the book is based on uh, a clear through line. So in that sense, it's a it's a narrative device uh, that I hope works to keep people interested and to to give the arguments some some force. But the street also works in in the sense of being a constraining situation. So the book talks about a lot of big societal or or city level processes, whether it's the sexual revolution, whether it's the '60s and the and uh, new ideas about participatory democracy corporate concentration and uh, changes in the real estate industry, big processes that are affecting Canada, North America, global economy at a high level. And what focusing on the street does is it makes them tangible. It lets me study the impact of these processes on a clearly defined place, on the actors that use and uh, are involved with that place. And in doing so, I hope it gives a series of case studies that will make all these major developments in, in post-war Canada more real, more tangible, more easily, I guess, unraveled 
through their connection to place. Yeah, and by having it on a place that a lot of people, certainly if you've ever been to Toronto, you've probably found yourself on Young Street at some point uh, that, that people would have a connection to that you could say, oh, like, oh, I remember there or like this part of the street and certainly the Eaton Center. Uh, I was there last fall, didn't go to Young Street, but I could see the Eaton Center from afar down the street. I think I can't remember which street I was on uh, looking west or east, excuse me, towards the Eaton Center. You just see the like ball of light at the end of it. <laughs> uh, like, so you can like, so you can make that connection to it. Uh, so, so I do appreciate that side of it, but did it make it more challenging potentially to always be coming back to this? You talk about how it does create a narrative and there's a narrative device to it, but I, I could imagine that for some things it would be difficult to connect sort of the high level discussions back down to the day-to-day and what's going on for people as they experience the street. Yeah, that's a challenge. And another challenge was knowing where to stop. So how, (laughs) to what extent can I voyage from the street, which is sort of the central base covered in the book, to the city level, to the national level, to even the continental level? I try and do a back and forth. So I try and link everything that's happening on Young Street to a larger context, whether that's at the city scale, metropolitan scale, or or a larger scale. But the, the challenge was not being pulled into, for example, the very interesting debates over apartment development, which are not really based around Young Street, but do uh, link to one of my themes or to not get too consumed in suburban politics, the politics of Toronto's suburbs, which are emerging as as political powers in this period. There's a challenge to this structure in the sense that it limits the book. It's, I think it works to an extent as a history of Toronto, but it's not a history of the whole city. Plenty of actors who weren't involved in these debates over Young Street don't feature in the book. Perhaps that'll be the next project. <laughs> but um, the, the challenge was always to return to the place that's... Uh, to, to the heart of Toronto, to, to use the organic metaphor that was used a lot in the 1960s and 70s of Young Street as sort of the essential center, the, the beating heart uh, of the urban community. But what distinguishes this from, obviously, it's, it's its own place, it's its own thing in Toronto and Young Street. But yeah, as we mentioned, there's urban malls across the country, there's tensions over building apartments, there's small business versus big business issues that exist in cities throughout Canada, throughout the United States. And I would imagine there's certainly European cities uh, as well, that you have these these points of tension. So what is it specifically about Young Street and Toronto that distinguishes it from other communities? And, and, and Or maybe the reverse of that is how much is Young Street and this particular store universal to, to a certain degree, and that these tensions play out in other communities. So it's for as much as it is about Young Street, it's about universal themes as well. Yeah, that, that's a, a great question. So I'll, I'll do the piece about Toronto first. So of course, a book like this wouldn't work with a street that didn't matter to people in Toronto. So Young Street mattered financially. This is some of the most expensive real estate in Canada. Um, this is a marketplace that employs thousands of people. This is a, a key shopping street, a gathering place, a public space, uh, a mobility corridor. It's a it's a street with immense economic, social, and symbolic power. And so that helps me distinguish it in Toronto from other streets, which of course are all part of the urban fabric of the architecture of the city, but don't have that same pull. So it's the centrality of Young as a, a downtown thoroughfare. In terms of comparing Young Street's story to other cities, I point out in the book what's unique, but I think 
the important context is is one of not the universality but but of how common these kind of debates over downtown were in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. So cities across North America in the context of suburbanization, decentralization, social change, are questioning the future of the heart of cities. And that's actually the context in which we start talking about the heart of cities uh, in the second half of the 20th century, anxiety over their future. Toronto sets itself apart from many other cities um, because, as you've mentioned, it has this booming financial district, uh, command and control center of the Canadian economy, which is functioning. Because Toronto, although it deindustrializes, although we lose 10 or 15,000 people from the center of the city to the suburbs during this period, it never hollows out. It never experiences the, the high levels of social conflict that define other North American cities. But it's entirely a North American story for cities to be questioning the future of downtown and then to be searching for activist solutions to the perceived problems in the heart of the city. And that uh, that they look to the state, that they look to corporations, and that they look to increasingly vocal citizens for those solutions is itself also a product of this period. And certainly in, in my experience in traveling around, certainly in, in the big cities on the Great Lakes, but I think this exists in Vancouver and Halifax to a certain degree. You know, the, the idea of cities with waterfronts, like it's always like, what do we do with the waterfront? And it's like, well, we got to revamp the waterfront. I'm like, okay, like then just do it. Like, and, and so those sorts of things, they're specific to the cities, but the themes, the, 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 the processes, they play out everywhere. So yeah, you're right. It, it's specific to Young Street, but it's also not, uh, if, if that makes mm-hmm. any sense. So if anyone's listening to this, although if you've, if you've made it almost an hour in, you're probably interested in Young Street itself. But if you're not interested in Young Street itself, there, there's themes here. There's there's stuff here for you. Uh, so certainly we encourage everybody to check it out again. It is the heart of Toronto, corporate power, civic activism, and the remaking of downtown Young Street. Daniel, if you want to get the book or if they want more information, follow up on what you got going on. How can they do that? Well, the book is available from April 1st, and you can buy it directly uh, through UBC Press or at your local bookstore. All right. And uh, we should, I should, maybe should have mentioned this at the top. You are one of the, act, uh, the active history editors as well. So this is, uh, I'm a contributing editor. You're a full-on editor. So, I mean, there, there's a little bit of, you know, it's, we're on the same team here. I won't call it nepotism, but you and I have been working together for a long time. We and have. actually, I was looking back at at um, at my notes. We last spoke on History Slam in 2013. Yeah, uh, at, uh, Congress. at the CHA. Yeah. yeah, which which one was that? Victoria. That or... was Victoria. Yeah. yeah, yeah. On the on the recap, so that would have been what like episode in the 40s. Yeah, somewhere around there. Yeah, so congrats yeah. on reaching 200. Congrats on 10 or 10 years. We're coming uh, up on 10 years. Uh, yeah. May, the CHA 2022 uh, would be 10 years. I'm going to look up the date. First episode we recorded was with Ian. So I, yeah, uh, well. Ian Milligan. So I want to see if I can go back and find the exact date uh, of when that, when that was. Second episode, we really, oh no, sorry. Victoria Lamb Drover, first one we recorded. Ian Milligan, first one we released. Victoria was released number two. So yeah, coming up on 10 years, uh, maybe we'll do something for it. I, I don't know. I, I keep thinking, oh, I should do something to commemorate it, but I have no idea what to do. So Someone should interview you. I guess. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I, I guess. I don't know. I thought I would read out, reach out to Ian and just be like, hey, 
the last 10 years have been weird, eh? Like <laughs> we were both grad students. Now we're not. So I, we'll figure out something to do. But thank you. Uh, I appreciate it. It's a, certainly a labor of love, uh, as I know a lot of these uh, online projects tend to be. But uh, I appreciate that. And congratulations to you on the book. Uh, so again, The Heart of Toronto, Corporate Power, Civic Activism, and the Remaking of Downtown Young Street. Daniel Ross, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Sean. It's great to talk to you. So there you have it. My chat with Daniel Ross, again, the book, The Heart of Toronto, Corporate Power, Civic Activism, and the Remaking of Downtown Young Street. Certainly thank him for joining us today and thank our friends out at UBC Press for helping to set this one up. So that'll do it for this week. Thank you, everybody, for... And of course, the book is coming out tomorrow. As we release this, uh, this episode's coming out March 31st. The book officially releases April 1st, 2022. And no, that is not a joke. That is the official release date. So uh, if you're interested, do go check that one out. Uh, and that'll do it for this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. If you have not yet, please do subscribe to the show wherever it is. You get your podcast, do the likes, ratings, comments, all that other good stuff helps people find the show, keeps us growing here on the History Slam. And of course, you can head on over activehistory.ca. All of our past episodes are available under the podcast tab, and you can check out some of the written material that is available on the site. Uh, Daniel and I were talking after we recorded about just how many great posts we have. There's 2,400 posts on the site. And if you take away the 300 or so total podcasts that there are, that's about 2,100 great pieces of written work that is uh, available for you on the site. Uh, If you put into the search bar, really anything associated with Canadian history and a lot of international history, something is likely to come up that uh, will interest you. Do check out some of that great work that is available over on the site. And if you have not yet, I would also encourage you to listen to last week's episode with Bethany Kilcrease on managing misinformation in the digital age. That was a great conversation. Very much enjoyed that one. Of course, if you want to let me know what you want to hear on the show, please do feel free to reach out historyslam at gmail.com or you can find me on Twitter at the Sean Graham. So thanks again for listening, everybody. Hopefully spring has sprung where you are as we come out of this winter and move into what I hope will be a healthy, happy summer for everybody out there. And I hope you will join me along the way for some more great historical discussions. The next one being next week as we'll be back with another new episode. So until we talk again, if you're out and you see Enrico Palazzo, please say hi for me. Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes.